The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and KUCI.org on the, on the web. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer, and your host is Mari. You can learn more about our guests and other shows at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari's a local attorney and author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She's testified many times in the California legislature, U.S. Congress, and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and many more shows. To learn more, you can visit identitytheft.org. So let's get started, Mari. Well, we are so thrilled tonight to have Peter Scheer with us. He is the executive director of the California First Amendment Coalition, which is a nonprofit public interest organization committed to free speech and open government rights. He's a lawyer and a journalist, and he was the editor and publisher of The Recorder, which is a daily legal newspaper in San Francisco, and publisher of Legal Times, a Washington, D.C.-based weekly law and lobbying uh, piece. Um, Peter practiced appellate law in Washington, D.C., and he's appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2006, Peter was named winner of the Eugene S. Pullman Pulliam First Amendment Award by the National Sigma Delta Chi Foundation. He's received many other awards, and he's written a lot of op-ed pieces. In fact, I, that's how I found him. I was reading the Daily Journal. And I've read a couple of his articles, and I said, this is a gentleman that we have to get on because he knows what he's doing. He's also had, besides the the Daily Journal, he's had a lot of op-ed pieces in the Sacramento Bee, the San Jose Mercury News, the Orange County Register, the San Francisco Chronicle, and many more. And um, he he's a Harvard Law School graduate, and he was a member of Harvard Law Review. I wrote for Law Review as well, but uh, not for Harvard. So we're really thrilled that he has joined us. Um, could, are you there, Peter? I certainly am. Hello, Maury, and thank you very much for that introduction. Well, thank you very much for joining us all the way from San Francisco. We really appreciate it. Peter, tell me, how is it that you got into really being interested in, in First Amendment rights? Um. Well, it's it's uh, it's it's a uh, it's a long-term interest. Um, um, when I was in college, I worked on a student newspaper, and uh, uh, worked for a little while as a as a newspaper reporter and in in, in an actual legitimate uh, daily newspaper before going to law school. Um, and uh, um, I remember probably the formative experience for me. Um, was while I was, I guess, in, in college, it was while I was in college that uh, the New York Times uh, began publication of the Pentagon Papers. Right. Ginsburg, and, yeah. And, uh, and then the United States Justice Department ran into federal court to stop the continued publication of those papers, arguing that, they, that to do so would do uh, terrible damage to national security. 
and uh, and that was a, obviously a, a, a big a big event at the time, still a big event historically. Um, everybody was the world was watching, and the case uh, escalated through the federal courts very quickly, and good, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the where the Supreme Court um, acting uh, faster than I think it had ever acted before on a case uh, ruled in favor of the press and uh, and. Uh, and said uh, uh, that uh, um, it's one thing for the Justice Department to try to punish certain kinds of publications after the fact, but but the Justice Department, but the federal government has very, very little authority, almost no authority, to stop a newspaper from publishing something of manifest public interest um, uh, in advance uh, to say, in effect, you can't publish tomorrow. Um, but what is referred to in, uh, in, in, in First Amendment vocabulary as a prior restraint. Um, anyway, I remember that vividly uh, as, as something that, uh, that uh, really, really uh, got my juices going. I was reading for the New York Times. And uh, I later had the, the good fortune of, of working for a short while with, uh, as a lawyer with um, Floyd Abrams, who represented the New York Times in that case when it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Anyway, um, that's that's sort of when it got started, and I've done other things since then. When I was a lawyer, I wasn't just a First Amendment lawyer, unfortunately. It's very hard to find such a practice. did lots of other things, um, but eventually found my way back into uh, into uh, the First Amendment arena um, use, uh, uh, by coming aboard here at the California First Amendment Coalition. Great. Could you move a little bit closer to your landline area thing so we can, uh, we're getting yeah. some static there. Um, let me ask you, so tell me exactly what the First Amendment Coalition does. Well, what we do is um, we, we consider ourselves uh, watchdogs for um, um, uh, free speech and open government. Um, and that means, for example, that we um, uh, we monitor what goes on in the legislature in Sacramento, and um, uh, testify when that's appropriate, um, and try to do damage control on on bills that look like they might be um, um, uh, might infringing uh, on in, yeah. yeah infringing on, on First Amendment rights or free speech rights, and on the other hand, pushing legislation that would enhance those rights. Um, we um, are involved in a lot of uh, sort of counseling and educational efforts. We have a a uh, hotline on our website, um, and uh, every, anybody free uh, can can uh, go to the website. And uh, if you have a question um, that relates to First Amendment rights or to um, open government um, principles. Uh, you can pose that question through our website, and we have a group of terrific lawyers who um, um, work under uh, retainer agreement uh, for us, and they will um, answer those questions. And let's say that website, it's www.cfac.org. CFAC, like the initials of our organization, California First Amendment Coalition. Okay. And uh, and then we also litigate. Um, we we file lawsuits. Um, we assist people who are in their own litigation 
uh, sort of behind the scenes and, and coming in as an amicus curiae or a friend of the court, but we also file litigation where we're the principal party. And uh, we have a couple of cases pending now, and we've, we've, we've filed a number of cases since I've been here. But that's also, we, we, we view that as a, a very important and often necessary um, instrument uh, for affecting um, uh, change in the legal environment in a way that will enhance rights of free speech. Peter, let me ask you something. A lot of people going by, you know, everybody knows the first 10 amendments. Can you kind of tell us, a little, you know, repeat for us, for those people who might have forgotten, what are sure. we talking about? We're talking about free speech, freedom of the press, religion. What, what are we talking about? Well, we, when you talk about the first amendment, you are talking about a couple of things, not all of which are really part of our... Um, um, your charge. <laughs> charge, right. Uh, you're talking about freedom of speech, right. freedom of the press, right. freedom of religion, which is mm-hmm. both freedom um, of religious expression and uh, freedom from um, governmental establishment of religion. Right. Um, you're also talking about freedom to uh, petition your government um, for redress of grievances, um, also known as lobbying. Uh, people don't realize it, but that's actually enshrined in our Constitution. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Um, it's, uh, it's not a very long amendment. Um, it's an amendment which uh, historically had very little force until it was interpreted by the, Cal- by the United States Supreme Court as applying to the state governments as well as the federal government, and then it began to have a lot of bite. Um, but it's very, very important, um, um, and uh, we would be living in a very different country if we didn't have it. And, and it's pretty scary now because there's some real threats. You know, um, uh, how I first found out about you was when I read your article about freedom of the press. And we've seen in the last year quite a number of examples of news reporters who are being compelled by the federal courts to disclose confidential information. We had Judith Miller, wasn't she, the New York Times? That's right. Matt Cooper, and recently Josh Wolf, who's in jail in the Bay Area. And uh, two reporters for the San Francisco Chronicle are on the verge of going to jail. So your organization believes reporters should not have to disclose confidential information, right? That is correct. Tell us about that. We believe that that reporters um, um, should, except under the most extreme circumstances, we believe that reporters um, need to be able to have a confidential relationship with sources um, because if they can't, then there are large categories of very, very, very important reporting that just won't happen. So, for example, um, um, at the national level in particular, uh, almost all reporting about national security matters can only occur if um, sources in the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community and elsewhere in the federal government um, who um, confidentially uh, uh, speak to uh, reporters um, can have a faith that the reporters promise to keep them anonymous, to keep their not only their name out of the out of the story, but to keep their 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 name a secret, go to the grave with that, with that um, information, um, unless that promise is credible, unless they can count on it, believe in it and count on it, they just won't talk to reporters. And so that means we won't have 
the Pentagon Papers stories. We won't have, uh, to take examples from the, or, or from the last year or two, we won't have New York Times stories about National Security Age- Agency. Let's get back now, Peter, to talking yeah. about um, why is this such a big problem now? Why are we having such a great problem with the freedom of the press that, that the sources that government is trying to get these sources. Is it all about terrorism? What is this all about? Well, that's a very, it's a very good question, um, and I'm not sure that there's, a, that there's a satisfactory answer to it. But it is the case that running from about 1975 up through, uh, you know, 2004, 2005, there were very, very few cases like this uh, where reporters were thrown in jail or threatened with jail and forced to disclose sources. You know, it, it happened once or twice and, and didn't, didn't really rise up to people, uh, people's radar screen, but, but in general it was, it was not a big deal, not a big problem. Um, I, uh, and, and, uh, and, 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 it, and it's also important to, to understand that um, it's only, the, the, the problem exists really only in federal cases and in federal court um, uh, at the state level in California and in almost every other state. Um, reporters do have pretty good protection against being forced to disclose confidential sources under state law, laws that are called shield laws. But the federal government, um, uh, uniquely now in America, um, doesn't have that. And so all the cases that we're seeing, first of all, are in federal court. And most of them involve investigations before crim- that are being conducted by criminal uh, grand juries, but not all of them. Um, uh, some of them involve uh, completely private litigation that just happens to be in federal court and to which um, journalists are witnesses or parties. For example, um, the scientist, the, the atomic scientist, Wen Ho Lee, sued the United States government um, for a violation of his privacy rights. And in that litigation, in the course of that litigation, they subpoenaed um, newspaper reporters um, and tried to force them to disclose their sources within the United States government, the FBI and the Justice Department, who had leaked, pretrial leaked uh, stories uh, that were very unflattering to Wen Ho Lee, uh, to the media. Um, and ultimately that case was settled. It was settled fairly recently right. with both the federal government and at least four or five major news organizations paying money, not a whole lot, but money, uh, to um, Wen Ho Lee. Um, so it's in federal court. Uh, it does certainly seem to... It, does, it, cert- it seems to me pretty clear that federal prosecutors feel that a, a, a line has been breached and the, 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 the traditional institutional reluctance to go after the press to get information, to get evidence for their cases that prevailed for so many years, that that's been breached and, and, uh, and they will now do it um, more freely. Um, there is supposedly a, a policy in the Justice Department that requires that the Attorney General 
or someone that he or she designates actually sign off on subpoenas uh, to reporters. Um, and that was designed uh, very much to, to make it difficult for prosecutors, for an assistant U.S. attorney out in the field, to do that. Um, it doesn't seem to be making it difficult anymore. Um, and uh, um, apparently, you know, the culture has changed, I think, within the Justice Department, and the word has gone down that if, if you need some evidence and a reporter has it, well, that's a logical place to go and get the evidence, and, uh, and, and, and that doesn't have to be your last resort. It can be one of your first resorts, too. So um, not clear why. But it is happening with greater frequency, and and now that it's happening with greater frequency, we can expect it to happen with even greater frequency because there seems to be no internal um, uh, disincentive to doing it, or 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 resistance internally within the Justice Department to doing it. So, do we need legislation? Is that something that we need to? Yes. And what kind of legislation are is your coalition suggesting? Well, we need to have at the federal level a shield law, just like the shield laws in California and in 49 other states. So explain what the shield law uh, says. Yeah. Well, the shield law is pretty simple. It, it, they, it varies from state to state, but basically it says, um, if you, it basically it says, uh, if you want to get confidential sources from a reporter or unpublished um, uh, text of a, of, a, of a story from a reporter or the notes of a reporter, or the outtakes of, uh, from a film um, that a videographer, documentarian, um, has, um, you've got to jump through a lot of hoops. Um, and, and, and those include first exhausting every other possible source to get that information. Right, that there's no other source you can get it from first. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and properly applied and enforced, that's a that's a, that's usually a very difficult requirement, right? Right. Um, because there are usually other sources. There are usually other witnesses, and uh, um, in some kinds of cases, uh, like civil cases, you just can't get it. Period. But then there will be some exceptions uh, where the where the where the where the restrictions can be met. Some criminal cases where it's absolutely. I mean, everybody can see, for example. Well, for terrorism, yeah. yeah. Exactly, I mean, right? if you, find, yeah, if somebody spoke to Osama bin Laden and they know where he is, it seems to me that that might be an extenuating circumstance that you would say, okay, you have to give that source. That's exactly right. Yeah. And after all, we do have other privileges, lots of other privileges in our legal system, and the the most the the strongest one, the one that is hardest to to penetrate, is the attorney-client privilege. Right. And even that one has exceptions, right? Exactly. Nothing's absolute. Right, right. So, um, so uh, a, a federal shield law would provide lots of protection, sort of analogous to the state shield laws, um, but without being an absolute barrier to getting information in an extreme and extraordinary situation. It surely doesn't seem like we're going to get something like that with the, the present state of Congress in, in this, uh, no. in this uh, White House. I, I don't I, think that's possible. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so either. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I, I think that uh, if you could force a vote on such an issue, there might be a majority support for it, but there's no enthusiasm for it within Congress. And I think the reason for that is is that uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, members of Congress and a lot of senators don't like the press very much. Right. I mean, the press is, is essential; they can't live without it. 
Um, on the other hand, they feel that they've been treated unfairly, which usually means that someone wrote a critical story rather than a glowing right, story right. about them. And so um, they, they, they don't particularly want to make it easier for the reporters who cover them. Well, look um, at Watergate. Yeah. I mean, if we didn't have Watergate, our, our whole lives would be different, right? I mean, that's very true. I mean, I, I remember being in college during the Watergate issues and watching what was going on, and it was very lucky that they had Deep Throat that could tell them, and Deep Throat finally came out of the closet just recently. Just recently. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It really is amazing. I just want to introduce you again. We, we've been speaking, um, if you're driving by and you want to know who this uh, brilliant man is, it's Peter <laughs> Shear, who is the executive director of the California First Amendment Coalition, which is a nonprofit public interest organization committed to free speech and open government rights. Peter, let's, let's talk a little bit about another thing. You know, what about... Um, the uh, challenges with the NSA warrantless wiretapping. We've talked about that before with the Center for Democracy uh, here. W what's your position here on um, the involvement, the lawsuits challenging the NSA's warrantless uh, wiretapping? Yeah. Well, we're actually involved in one of those cases, the one that's, that, that uh, they've, they've, those cases have been filed all over the country, in fact. Right. Um, but the, uh, the principal one um, is up here in San Francisco, um, in federal court, um, filed uh, uh, by uh, in, in, in filed uh, by uh, someone who uh, used to work for AT and T, uh -huh. and and uh, 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 this suit, um, uh, uh, and this suit basically um, says that AT and T. It's a suit against AT and T. Not, uh, not against NSA as such, but it's a suit against AT&T that says that AT&T broke the law in various ways by cooperating with the National Security Agency in uh, implementing the uh, warrantless surveillance program that the president has owned up to. Right. Um, and and, and I, th I think uh, this suit also uh, alleges that there were additional even... Uh, well, that there were additional um, uh, NSA programs that have not really they have not fully come to light um, that might have been even more intrusive and invasive of, of, of individual uh, privacy. But uh, our view on this um, is uh, uh, well, it's, we don't, we're not we don't take a position on the ultimate question of whether or not the president of the United States has the constitutional, legal, or other legal authority. To do to 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 order the NSA to um, engage in this uh, program, we're just not you know we we have no extort we have no special expertise in that area, and a lot of people brighter than I am disagree on that, and ultimately that will have to be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, but what we do believe very strongly is that the case in San Francisco and other similar cases need to happen. And they should not be shut down because the federal government doesn't want uh, the public uh, to know more than it's already told them about these surveillance programs. And that's what the government has tried to do in these cases. In San Francisco, uh, it, it came into court and it invoked what is called the state secrets privilege. And the state secrets privilege is this very, very powerful privilege. It's sort of the nuclear bomb of, of uh, governmental privileges, governmental defenses to litigation. 
And they come in and they said, because this stuff is so sensitive, the whole case has to be thrown out. Because any trial, any hearing, any uh, discussion of the facts in dispute in this case will inevitably and necessarily um, disclose national security secrets. Um, and so we can't even begin to have this case. Uh, and uh, there's no way to you know, adjust for it, to have sort of secret segments of the case or to conduct parts of it with the doors closed. None of that will work. The case just has to be completely tossed out. Now, usually when the federal government invokes that privilege, and it doesn't do it very much, but usually, almost always, I should say, when it does, it wins because mm. judges don't particularly like to be in the position of second-guessing the Attorney General of the United States and the right. FBI Director and everybody else in the world in Washington about the sensitivity of the information at issue in the case. Um, um, you know, how do, what does a federal judge know about uh, uh, the damage that might be done to national security if the case proceeded? You sort of have to take, they think, uh, the word of these experts. Nonetheless, in this case, um, the judge, a guy named Vaughn Walker, who interestingly is a Republican appointed by George Bush one when he was president, right. um, uh, he said uh, in his ruling, no, the federal government has not come close to meeting its burden to have the whole case thrown out under the state secrets privilege. The case must go on. And that was a shocker. That was absolutely a shocker. They were, I'm sure they were, uh, that, that, was, that, that was something that was not at all anticipated uh, in, the Wash, in, the justice, in the Bush Justice, justice Department. And now they're scrambling to take an emergency appeal to the Federal Court of Appeals out here in California, the Ninth Circuit, to try to get it reversed. And, um, and uh, we support uh, Judge Von Walker's uh, ruling there and his, and his reasoning there and feel very strongly uh, that the case has to proceed in some manner. And, and uh, 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 this is not, it's, it's, of, all the, of, of all cases right now, uh, this is not, this, this, the, the, this category of cases uh, especially need to, um, uh, um, need to continue in open court with the press present so the public can understand what really went on, what the legal issues are, and whether anyone's rights were ultimately violated. Right. This has to be transparent. Peter, I, you know, I when I talk to people on the street and, you know, normal people and even my husband, you know, they say, well, we have nothing to hide, and if they're going to find terrorists with the NSA surveillance, then go for it. So how do we say, how do we explain to them the dangers that they just don't seem to get? Yeah, well... The dangers are um, that uh, once you allow the executive branch of government to listen in on conversations, even on a very, very selective basis, um, without any judicial oversight, without any court officer as a filter to decide whether or not this is lawful, whether or not this is okay. Whether or not there's a reasonable cause mm -hmm. to even look at this stuff. Is there a probable cause or right. even a reasonable cause? Is there some issue here? And, and if I understand correctly, I mean, it wasn't a real high level 
um, to, to get a warrant. You know, and it, it wasn't that difficult to get a warrant from the FISA courts, right? Uh, I, I think that's right in the sense that they always got them. They, they, only they, got, they, they were lost, only very few. I think there were five in like five years. When we sp- spoke with the Center for Technology and Democracy, I think there were such a minimal amount that were ever turned down. So what in the world is this all about? You know, scare people into saying, give up your rights because we're going to find terrorists. This is right. the thing that scares me. Now, there, it's, it's still possible because we, re- we really don't know all the details about, about how this program worked, that there were some circumstances in which they, uh, that NSA um, and the CIA needed to have access to certain, um, certain communications so quickly that they would have to act um, uh, without advance approval uh, by a FISA court. But, but isn't, that, it, but isn't it true the that they had 72 hours afterward that they went... That, that's right. So if they, if they had to do it in an exigent circumstance, they still had time, 72 hours afterward, to present the warrant to the FISA court, right? That's correct. If they, if they had the, the requisite... Uh, uh, it's not probable cause, but some kind of reasonable basis reasonable for believing. Reasonable basis, yeah, yeah. And and um, uh, uh, but you know, even even I think it's important again to we, we, the jury is not in yet. We still don't know exactly what they were, what kinds of information they uh, uh, they felt they had to move so quickly to obtain, and that that couldn't have been gotten uh, with the with the FISA system in place. But it's possible. I mean, the FISA, the FISA system was set up in 1978, and, and technology has advanced a lot since then. And it's, it's possible, but, but it seems to me very clear that if the government needed additional authority, it had to come and either get it from Congress eventually, or on a, some kind of emergency temporary basis, you know, create some new mechanism using the FISA judges so that at least they were not doing it entirely on their own initiative. Right. The whole, what you asked, the question you asked is the right one. Why should Americans worry about it? And the answer is, well, um, you should worry not necessarily about this particular thing, but what happens if, if it goes beyond this? In other words, if you, we, we, we live in a, we live in a, in, in a country where, where, where government is subject to legal constraints. And the only way those legal constraints in this area um, can be uh, meaningfully enforced is is through some judicial involvement uh, in the criminal context area. You can't get you know wiretap without a, uh, a warrant. Yeah, checks and balances. Yeah, and yeah. in this context, it doesn't take quite the same thing, but it takes something, and and maybe it, it should take uh, less in an emergency circumstance, but it but it should certainly nonetheless in some way involve a third party, the courts. In the checks and balances, it's absolutely right of our of our government uh, looking over the shoulder of the FBI. Because if you don't do that, then there's just no restraint. There's no constraint, and the rationale that because of national security concerns, because of a fear of of uh, terrorism, that you have to now expand these the eavesdropping. You have to now start um, listening in on conversations just between. Uh, American citizens, and you have to listen to them, you know, longer and longer, and many more people. Um, you know, at some point, uh, you can quickly wake up one day, and it's and 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 it's. I'm not, I'm not a paranoid person, but you can quickly wake up one day, 
and discover um, that uh, you can no longer have much confidence that when you are talking to your mother on the telephone that the government isn't listening in. And and I think the scarier part even than that is that where's the accountability? Like, you know, and we hear about all these horrible things in China and other places where they don't have a democracy, where there aren't these checks and balances, where, you know, uh, power corrupts, you know, to have that power that you don't have to tell anybody the reason, you don't have to bring forth any reasonable cause, you can just say, aha, Mari Frank, let's see, we can't tell you why, but we're going to go and take all of her, you know, we're going to surveil her for everything that she does, and they can trump up a case, and, and with all the technology, they could even make a case against me that really didn't exist. You know, and and I think that's scarier than listening in on my conversation with a, with a relative, um, because the the kinds of things that can happen when you don't have someone else looking over the shoulder, there's just no accountability, and and to me, that takes away all of our uh, freedom of speech and all of our of our of all you know our right to be in this country, right? I agree completely, and I and I think that's true even when you're talking about a program that, uh, of surveillance that seems to be very narrowly drawn, that seems to be very carefully applied, and where, uh, uh, where the people who are in charge of it at the NSA are acting in good faith and sensitive to people's individual rights. Um, because we're talking about something here that shouldn't depend on... Um, uh, 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 individuals in the government. It needs. We're talking about a a, a need for a structural uh, uh, check on what uh, the executive branch of government can do in the area of listening into our conversations. We're speaking with Peter Scheer, who is the executive director of the California First Amendment Coalition. He's an attorney, and he's the head of this nonprofit public interest organization committed to free speech and open government rights. Speaking about that, um, why does government openness or government transparency matter? I mean, we kind of talked about that before, but but there's a lot of other thing that there's other areas there's real where there isn't transparency. I'm thinking of like TSA. You know, there is a kid in my neighborhood who still is having problem getting on an airplane, and the the whole uh, right. you know watch list is there's it's not transparent. And, you know, and, and, and it's not and it's not only the you know the agents they, we're not uh, that's a problem not only with respect to agencies that have uh, that sort of are in the business of keeping secrets, uh, uh, but what about you know just uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles in, in California if there's something something in your record, but you, it seems to be getting in the way of your getting decent rates on insurance, and you try to find out what they are, but you can't find out because they won't tell you what's in your, uh, what's, what's in your record. Um, or, um, but, but you know who else, but somebody can go into Choice Point or something else, and they can get your record, right? <laughs> that's, that's, you that's know, third parties, true. information brokers can get it, but you can't get right, it. Right, exactly. And, you know, and then we're talking, and, and then there's the whole range of information that's really not about you personally, not about a particular, not about me, not about you, but just uh, um, records kept by government agencies, millions of them, that, that uh, uh, people have a need for. Uh, there can be in- industry wanting to look at them, in- uh, private individuals, newspaper reporters, uh, academics, um, um, 
but uh, uh, the, the government is a great producer and gatherer and husbander of information uh, in record form, some increasingly digital. And, and it's very important that, um, um, that everybody understand that, that those records belong to the public. Um, uh, the government is, is a servant of the people, and we pay taxes, and, 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 and government um, uh, does a lot of what it does with uh, keeping records. Um, uh, and, and those records, with some important exceptions that exist for valid reasons, the vast, vast majority of those records are uh, public property. They're in the public domain. And uh, under our laws in California, we have a Public Records Act, and we have an open meeting law called the Brown Act. Uh, they are available uh, at, at, at zero or minimal cost um, to every citizen. And you don't have to have a particular reason for asking for them. If you want to see the, the records of, uh, of uh, um, uh, the minutes of a local city council meeting, or um, uh, communications between certain staff and and members of a local school board. You have a right to see those, right? And you don't have to have a particular. You, know, you don't. You don't have to be someone writing a you know a treatise uh, to justify getting it, um, or to be uh, um, uh, or to be someone in, in government who's investigating somebody to get it. You have a right to get it because you're a citizen, and it is a it is a it is a it is a uh, as a function of, uh, of just simply being um, a member of the community under our laws, uh, that you have a right to get it. And the reason that right exists is that government, in a democratic system, government is only accountable, if you think about it, it's only ultimately accountable if we know what it's doing. Right. If we don't know what government is doing, then we can't hold public officials accountable Elections, you still have elections perhaps, but they don't mean very much because you're not really in a position to judge the competence or the honesty or whatever of the public officials whom you're voting for. You um, know, it's, it's interesting because there's, there's this balance between privacy and, and openness and, mm-hmm. and privacy and, and the ability of public to see it. And, you know, in California, we recently had the Burkle case, which was the family law case. Right in which Burkle wanted to um, keep his financial information um, from going, you know, into the public record. And um, his wife fought that. You know, we already have, and I worked on laws that we could redact the Social Security number because there's no real reason that you should have the Social Security number available for everybody because that's obviously the key to the kingdom of identity theft. Mm -hmm. But the issue was whether or not the public and and the press Mm -hmm. should have access to the um, the financial records of Burkle, who was you know multimillionaire, that's right. b- billionaire, and uh, that that was really interesting because um, I took a stand, at least from my perspective as privacy and one who does family law, is that there is no reason in the world that that the press or the public needs to know exactly what the financial situation is for these people. Mm-hmm. However. The law is very clear that they had a fiduciary duty to each other to disclose and that That's they right. couldn't keep it from each other. So I just wonder, what is the First Amendment uh, Coalition's view on the Burkle case? Well, that's very interesting because uh, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, 
uh, you're absolutely right that sometimes um, uh, the principle of openness and rights of access to government right. um, um, is in tension with uh, rights of individual privacy. Right. And it usually comes up in this area where the records that you're looking for are not um, are not government records just about government uh, actions and government policies and government decisions, but they're information that government has gathered uh, about private individuals. Right. And, uh, and the Burkle case sort of really um, puts that in bold relief uh, um, uh, because uh, in, a, in a divorce proceeding, um, there's a lot of there's private a lot of stuff. financial yeah. information that yeah. comes into the proceeding. Yeah. Um, basically, it basically, just so people can understand uh, what it's like for those those, those out there who haven't uh, been through the hell of a divorce, <laughs> see, I haven't. Yeah. Well, you, you divide the community property. I mean, yeah. you've got assets and debts, and then you are to divide those exactly. upon dissolution. And so you have to disclose them to each other. That you have to know what it is. You have to know what income and expenses and um, their separate income and their community income and everything that you earn during a marriage is community mm-hmm. unless they have a you know a premarital and so the issue is is that when you get divorced you have to show everything you have to disclose everything to each other mm-hmm. the question was do you also have to disclose everything to the public meaning in the public records and in the court records that's right and i'm not going to duck your question i believe that you do have to disclose it to the to the public now i i, I believe i believe definitely that things like Account numbers and social security numbers and and other uh, kinds of uh, sensitive identifying information that would allow um, scam artists to you know steal from you. All that has to come out. Uh-huh. All that certainly can become can come out. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to in, in you know in, in in the Burkle case, you simply you know the listing of of assets and liabilities. Um, uh, I think that uh, that. Uh, needs to be in the public record so that the public can decide whether or not the uh, the court system, uh, which we're forced to go through in a divorce proceeding, functions fairly and and uh, and efficiently and honestly. Mm-hmm. Now, in in the Burgle case, for example, um, his wife obviously uh, had the resources to have. Uh, very uh, competent counsel, I'm sure. Right. Um, um, and so uh, uh, the concern isn't quite so ac- acute there. But in many other uh, divorce cases, one or the other spouse, typically the the woman, uh, but le- not not invariably, um, is is not is is likely going to be in a weaker position uh, to litigate the contested issues in a divorce going into court, and. And so it, 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 there is a, a, a public interest, a fairly strong one, in, in, in seeing whether, um, in those cases, whether judges are scrutinizing um, the pleadings and, and questioning the parties and getting all the information needed so that uh, community property is uh, uh, 
Divided according to the law. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. And, and that the things that are included, in it's, and it's not just, everybody, some people might think, well, what's the big deal? You just take the total and divide by two. But no, 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 no. Obviously, it's a have, little bit more complex yeah, you have, than you that. Have yeah. to, you have to figure out exactly what qualifies as community right. property. And there's lots of arguments about that. Well, people right. say, well, this shouldn't be in it. It's all mine. Right, right. And those, right. those are important legal and, uh, and factual judgments, which uh, people can disagree about. But it's very important that they be made on the up and up. By well, judges you have to, who, yeah. who are who are uh, thoughtful and, and 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 careful about how they do it, as in as in all other aspects of the of uh, of the court system. Well, California, you 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 really no judges in Orange County, for example, where where I live, will will seal a case. There you you know, and there have been the first that's that's again the First Amendment issue of whether you can seal a case even if the parties stipulate. That's right. And and I have had in the past, and I know not to do this anymore, but I've tried to have a stipulated um, sealing of records in, in uh, dissolution, and the courts have rejected it. That's right. And yeah. so we've had to have private settlement agreements that we keep private and then a public one that we put in the court that's sanitized. <laughs> so right. that's how I get around it. That's right. Um, uh, and and in um, uh, this is Orange County. This is Orange County. Yeah. I guess Orange County is, is is following the law more closely than, than than lots of other superior courts in the state. But you're absolutely right. I mean that the rule is very clear, and the constitutional uh, uh, holdings of the state supreme court are very clear. That court proceedings, uh, with only very rare exceptions, have, can't be sealed, uh, and the documents can't be sealed. Um, and if they are going to be concealed, it has to be on the base. Has, there have to be um, uh, specific findings uh, to justify that uh, by the judge. The parties can't stipulate to it because right. there are really three parties to that decision, and only two are present in court. There is the plaintiff, and there is the defendant, and there is the public. Right. And if the plaintiff and the defendant, you know, agree that they that that uh, stipulate that that everything should be sealed up. That doesn't take into account the view of the public, and so uh, these rules exist to make sure that the public interest is vindicated by making it difficult, not impossible, but difficult to seal records. Let me ask you, you were talking about the difference between, you know, the federal government and the state government, and I have been, you know, I follow a lot of privacy newsletters, and it's my understanding that, that the Freedom of Information Act, at least at the government level, there have been so many refusals on the part of governmental agencies that have just drastically increased in recent years as a refusal to comply with the uh, for the uh, the uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. Have you seen that and can you explain what's going on? Well, I think certainly I think that's that's true. Uh, there's a, it's a huge volume of material of, of requests in the fe- at the federal level uh, and and uh, and the uh, responsiveness of, of agencies of the federal government does vary a lot from agency to agency. Um, uh, it'll surprise some people, I think, to know that that uh, the most frequent uh, users of the Freedom of Information Act uh, to get information from federal agencies um, are not members of the media, are not um, academics, um, but uh, are are private corporations, and they're private corporations, public corporations. Often, what they're doing is trying to get information about their competitors um, that is gathered by agencies that regulate both them and their competitors. 
Um, anyway, uh, the area certainly where both response times have gotten much longer and where denials are much more common um, are, 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 are those agencies that do anything that can even be vaguely connected to uh, the war on terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, um, the government uh, um, has been, I think, uh, uh, very short-sighted uh, because it has it has it has uh, basically taken the view that uh, uh, because we're they've taken the view that to avoid a mistake, we're going to deny everything. Uh-huh. We're going to say everything is classified right. and it can't be disclosed. But the but the problem is, as people who uh, have worked um, in the Defense Department or in just been in the armed services and dealt with some classified information, will understand is that in a in a world in which everything is classified, nothing is classified. In other words, if everything is if everything is treated like a secret, then nothing is really. Um, uh, capable of being protected. Mm-hmm. No, no secrets can really be kept because it's too much and there are too many people who have access to them. Um, and you can't... Uh, it, to, for, for a system... To have, a, to have an effective system of, of information classification that keeps secret the stuff that really needs to be kept secret, and we all have to understand here that there are, the, our government does have secrets that right, legitimately right. have to be kept. Absolutely. That, you, that the only way to do that is to have as few of them as possible. And, and the more you have, and the more, non, the more information that really doesn't need to be kept secret that you try to keep secret, the less capable the system is of protecting the secrecy of the jewels that truly do have to be kept secret. Right. Like our, you know, our, our, our abilities, our sources and methods to, to track and monitor terrorists today. Um, um, uh, you know, nothing could be more sensitive. Or during the Cold War, um, um, our, our abilities to, to know the location of uh, missile-firing submarines belonging to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the kinds of secrets, you know, that we spend right. billions of dollars bomb, to protect. Yeah, the atom bomb back in, in World War II, those right. kinds of things. Exactly. Those are just, those are necessary. Let me ask you something, getting back to about the newspaper. You know, several months back, remember all those cartoons depicting Mohammed? Yeah. And that set off, you know, violent protests, protests, you know, really all over the place, you know, in the Middle East, and then we've had, you know, Denmark, you know, there was all sorts of going on. And the United States newspapers covered the con- the controversy, but, you know, it, we really, in many of the newspapers, we didn't even get to see those photos. What was what was that all about? Was that self-censorship of the press? And what do you think about that? You know, that, uh, I think, uh, journalists uh, uh, disagree. Uh, uh, it's a hot topic. Right. Hot button issue, um, but in my view that was that was uh, that was self censorship, and, and it shouldn't have happened. But let me elaborate. Um, I think that the initial editorial decision by I think it was a Denmark publication, as you said, right? Um, their initial decision to use uh, to, to 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 print those cartoons was questionable. Questionable is a matter of editorial judgment. Sure, they have the right to do it. Yes, they have the constitutional right to print those. Should they have, um, where, they, where they were serving no particular pur- purpose except to, um, except to uh, anger 
a segment of their community. Right. Um, and sort of test how far they could go before they before people uh, that community really blew up in response. Um, um, so I think that was that was questionable, uh, and and perhaps they shouldn't ever have run them. But once they did, then there was then there was a big story about the fact that they had and what the response was all over the world. There was you know as you say there was rioting, um, and we had at least you know two weeks of, of, of front page stories about that reaction right. and speculation in various column, columns with pundits talking about why those um, Muslim communities were reacting as they did to those images. And in that period of se- that secondary, that, that second wave of, of news stories, it was, I think, absolutely incumbent on, re- on, on newspapers and other news organizations to show their readers what the fuss was all about. Right, right. You know, you're left instead wondering what these things uh, could possibly look like. And um, it seems to me that the first rule, if there's, a, if, there's a, if, if there's, you know, if there are clear rules in this area, the first ethical obligation of, of a newspaper, of a news organization, is in its coverage of uh, a legitimate story of public interest to never withhold Im- important material information that is part of that story that they know to be accurate. And then everybody that they have. right. Then everybody had to go on the internet to find the pictures. Right, and <laughs> I suppose that's what they, that's how they justified it. Well, those who who need to see it will go and find it elsewhere. And you know, well, that's but that's a ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Um, so I remember going out to look at it, you know, on the internet. What is what is everybody talking about here? It's it's crazy. And I think those of us who did that, and I did that too, uh, were were probably were mostly shocked to see how how mild the cartoons were. Right. Um, and, and how um, well that they, you know, that that uh, uh, the caric- the caricaturization. Of the prophet um, um, was was uh, relatively inoffensive compared to run of the mill uh, run of the mill caricatures of of the United States president that appear in cartoons in the U.S. Right. media every day. Right, and the Israelis. I know it, it was just amazing. Well, that kind of leads in. We don't have a lot of time. We have five minutes, but you know, I, I really thought that that kind of leads into everybody's a journalist now. On the internet, right? I mean, anybody and anybody can be a journalist. Um, hate speech can be on the internet. What is going to happen with the First Amendment rights and and the balance of of you know democracy, First Amendment rights, and technology? Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you see coming here with um, you know? I, I worry about hate speech on the internet, right? So, so what what are your thoughts with regard to how do you how do we deal with the First Amendment rights and hate speech and the internet and all that stuff? How do we deal with that? Well, in my in my view, um, um, any any effort through government regulation or decree to restrict certain kinds of speech because of its offensiveness, granting that it's terribly offensive. Mm-hmm is going to create a problem that is worse than the problem you're trying to fix. 
right. um, that uh, you will end up creating a system of censorship, which um, in the long run we would all regret. Um, and and, uh, and the, the, the only thing I can point to about how we, how we should uh, deal with some of this is the remedy for hateful speech um, um, uh, really uh, 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 we're talking about constitutionally protected speech right, right. Not, let's just be clear we're not talking about child pornography right, right uh, we're talking about a constantly protected speech, but that is really offensive and hateful and and meant to vilify racial groups or religious groups or whatever. Right. The 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 answer to that, uh, the best you can do, and it's 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 the same answer we've had historically, um, uh, is more speech. Right. Write letters to say how horrible that is. Right. Yeah. You, you expose yeah. it. You. Uh, you know, for every for every blogger who wants to indulge in that stuff, hopefully there's another blogger somewhere um, who wants to draw attention uh, uh, to it so that it can be condemned um, by others on the internet. Who wants to point out? Who's willing to point out the hypocrisy of the uh, speaker uh, uh, um, because of uh, you know other things that have been said in the past? Um, who's willing to argue and point out how erroneous the stereotypes and the characterizations are and how and how dangerous it is for people to um, um, speak about their fellow citizens in that way. So, in a way, it's actually a blessing in disguise because it will get us all to work on our journalistic skills to be more articulate right. than, than the hateful writers and to do that. That's well, right. you've done that because I, I keep seeing all the articles that you've written and I so much appreciate you bringing um, your wisdom to, to the Daily Journal and to other newspapers so that we can read and learn from you. And we're going to have to go now, and you'll have to come back and, and come and visit us again. Well, I, I hope to do that. And you've been listening. So thank you so much. And you've been listening to Peter Shear, who is the executive director of the California First Amendment Coalition, a nonprofit uh, public interest organization committed to free speech and open government rights. And the website for this um for this wonderful organization is www.c, like cat, fac.org. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. To learn more about this guest and our previous guests and listen to the previous interviews, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn who's going to come on in future weeks, please go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And uh, we hope that you will join us next week at 5 to 6 p.m. and every week from 5 to 6 p.m. Thank you so much, our engineer Lloyd. And thank you, Steve, for joining us as our intern. We hope you get your show that you want to, and we'll promote that as well. So thank you very much, and see you next Wednesday at 5 to 6 p.m. here at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.